Good evening and welcome again to our Bible study series that we're doing on the book of Acts. We will hopefully be finishing part three tonight in this 12-part series on the entire book of Acts, 28 chapters. And we're moving along rather slowly because we're not really in a hurry, especially with chapter two, which is a very, very key and significant part of the entire book of Acts. And as always, I want to mention, if we do have anyone new joining us, all of these studies are recorded, and there are notes for all of the different parts of this study, which you can access in any number of ways. Uh, you can either go to the website new-life-ministries.org and download them from there. Uh, if you want to listen either live or even go back and listen to recordings uh, through the MixLR website. Uh, that's MixLR.com, and our broadcast name is New Life Ministries there. And again, you can listen live online when we're broadcasting or go back later and hear the recordings. You can also subscribe to the New Life Ministries podcast, and you'll get all of the recordings and all of the notes as they become available. That's really the simplest way of all if you know how to do that on your smartphone or other device. Again, we are in part three, and part three covers Acts chapter two, which we have entitled Pentecost and the Birth of the Church. And just a very quick review, um, just as God had promised, he poured out his spirit on the day of Pentecost, and they were all filled with the spirit. They began to speak in other tongues. Uh, it created uh, a major stir in the entire city of Jerusalem. And Peter stood up in the midst of that and preached the first sermon after the birth of the church. Um, it is generally recognized that the church was born on the day of Pentecost. Jesus promised, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's about all he ever spoke about the church when he was here on earth. All he said before he ascended to the Father to his apostles was, wait in Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. Wait for the promise of the Father, the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And so, now, Jesus has ascended back to the Father. The Holy Spirit is going to continue the work that Christ began while he was here on earth. And the very next time that we'll see the word church is here in Acts chapter 2. It's never mentioned again in the Gospels. Only when we come to Acts 2 will we find the word church. And so, with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, something supernatural happened, far more than just a bunch of people speaking in tongues and prophesying. Something uh, very profound was taking place here where the body of Christ was being formed and God was supernaturally joining these believers together into what we now call the church. And I want to pick it up from part of Peter's sermon. We've already read this, but I want to read it again. In Acts 2 and from verse 32 to verse 41, perhaps. 32 to 41. Peter is preaching here. He says, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. I like that word, fact. This is a fact of history. God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses. God made sure that there were over 500 eyewitnesses to the fact that there really was a man named Jesus who was crucified, dead, buried, and rose again from the dead. 
It's a fact. It's a historical fact. And these were witnesses of the fact that Jesus was risen from the dead. Verse 33, exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. So we saw in Acts 1, the apostles actually witnessed not only the risen Christ, but they watched him ascend back up to the Father. They saw him going up in the clouds. And now that Christ had been exalted to the right hand of God, he received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and then poured out the Holy Spirit on those 120 believers. Jesus is actually the one who baptizes us with the Holy Spirit and fire. It might sound a little bit confusing, but Jesus went back to the Father. The Father entrusted the Holy Spirit into Jesus' hands. He received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and then He poured out the Holy Spirit on the disciples. Verse 34, continuing, For David did not ascend to heaven, yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Verse 36, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now let's pause here for a minute. We're going to find this a number of times as we move through the book of Acts. When the apostles bore witness to the resurrection of Christ, and when they presented the facts of the gospel, they didn't mince words. They didn't try to be very careful with what they said because they didn't want to offend anyone. This is very offensive, what Peter said. God has made this Jesus, whom you just crucified, he has made him both Lord and Christ. Well, we saw the results of that kind of preaching last time. Verse 37, When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? They weren't arguing. They weren't debating. They weren't challenging. They had one question now. What should we do? And we saw last time that this is absolute evidence that the Holy Spirit was at work on this crowd listening to Peter. Peter is now under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is working in the people's hearts as Peter is speaking. Because Jesus promised that when the Holy Spirit came, he would convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. And we saw last time, it's not our job to convince people that they're sinners. That's the Holy Spirit's job. And we need to get out of the way and let the Holy Spirit, what He and only He can do, and that is convince people that they're sinners. That's what the word convict means. But I actually like the word convince better. Because I meet a lot of people who really aren't convinced that they're sinners. They argue with me and they say, oh, I'm okay, or I've got my own way of worshiping God. And on and on and on they go. But when the Holy Spirit works on somebody, he slices into their heart. It says they were cut, they were pierced like a knife was being plunged into their hearts. And it brought that conviction. They were now convinced, oh my God, I'm a sinner. What must I do? You know, I like it when people have a simple question like that. What shall we do? That tells me 
they know they're in need of something. They're in need of dramatic, radical change. And until I see that, I don't have a whole lot of hope that my words are going to help them. But Peter, I think, discerning that the Holy Spirit was at work powerfully, he had an answer prepared for them. Verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is exciting stuff, my friends. This is what we long to see in our day. The gospel being preached, Jesus Christ being exalted, hearts of sinners being cut and brought to true repentance, and people getting saved, born again, baptized, and filled with the Holy Spirit. This is what we're witnessing here, and as I've been stating from the very start of this whole study, we're not just reading through the book of Acts so we can fill our heads with a little more knowledge about church history and how the church began. We're reading this with a real intense interest. Lord, where is this church today? And if you're a part of a church, I challenge you, just read Acts chapter 2. Read it carefully and ask yourself, is my church like this? Do I see all of these things happening in my church? If not, what goes on in my church? Maybe there's a lot of stuff going on in our churches that we don't even find here in Acts chapter 2. But these are essential ingredients of a real church. And we're going to summarize all that at the end of part 3 tonight. But I want to challenge every one of us with what we just read here. Peter boldly preached, in just a few words, the simple gospel. Jesus Christ crucified, put to death, raised from the dead, and exalted back to the right hand of the Father, and the Holy Spirit has now been poured out. God made this Jesus both Lord and Christ. Lord means he's Lord of everything. He's master of the universe. And when you and I get that revelation, it should spark a question from our hearts. Oh my God, what must I do? Now that Jesus is Lord, how must my life change? How must my thinking change? How must my attitudes, my world view my ambitions change. And we saw that's what's incorporated into this word, repent. When they asked Peter, what are we supposed to do? The first thing he said is, repent. One translation for that we saw is, change your life. <laughs> well, that's just three simple words, but that's a mouthful. Change your life. And we put together a simple definition for repentance. It's a change of mind, attitude, purpose. It's a turning away from darkness and sin, turning toward God, accepting and embracing His will and His ways. Thus, change your whole life. That's what the word means. Your whole life is needing to be radically changed. And I mentioned this last time. When I don't see a radical change in a person's life, I have good reason to doubt whether they've truly repented. Because that's what the word means. Radical change. It's not just, well, now I'm going to intellectually sort of agree with the teachings of the church, and I might even start 
coming to church. That's not what this is talking about. This is a radical change. And we ended last time looking in a little bit more depth at verse 40, which all it says is with many other words, Peter warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. He went into a whole lot more detail, which is not given to us in the record, but he obviously went into much more detail about what repentance really looks like. It means leave all of your sin, leave all of your idols, your whole mind and thinking needs to change. And I read to you one of the translations on verse 40 from the Message Bible. It reads like this, Peter went on in this vein for a long time, urging them over and over, get out while you can, get out of this sick and stupid culture. With many words, Peter was urging them, pleading with them, and warning them. You know, those are strong words. Pleading, warning, get out of this sick and stupid culture. But that's what we're looking at. A radical change. Turning from darkness to light. Turning from Satan and sin to God and His ways. Well, that's where we want to really pick it up tonight and finish off the rest of chapter 2 in Acts. And if you are following along in the outline, that brings us to page 33, and we're going to begin with Roman numeral 3, the fellowship of believers. And as we prepare to do that, I want to comment just a little bit more on what we read in verse 41. 3,000 souls accepted Peter's message. It says, they, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number. That's actually the word church. We'll discuss that. 3,000 new members added to the church that very day. I don't know how they did that. There obviously wasn't enough time to interview each one of these 3,000 people to make sure they had really gotten born again, they were really saved, etc. 3,000 accepted the message. Well, that tells me a lot. They repented. They listened to Peter's words, warning them to get out of this sick and stupid culture. They had already been convicted by the Holy Spirit. They had already been cut to the heart. And they were ready for change in their life. And, as I mentioned, when I see a sinner who's not ready for radical change in their life, the work hasn't really been done in the heart yet. We need to wait and pray some more for the Holy Spirit to work on them. He needs to cut the heart. Bring that deep conviction that I am the chief of sinners. I need God to have mercy on me. I need something to fix this mess that I'm in called sin. Well, there were 3,000 in the crowd that day that not only listened to Peter, it says they accepted his message. They didn't argue, they didn't debate, they didn't nitpick, they didn't try to challenge him on this point or that point. They just accepted the message, they repented, and they got baptized. Well, there are a couple of other things implied there, because Peter answered their question, what shall we do? Repent, be baptized, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we can only assume that as they accepted his message, they repented, they were all water baptized, and they all were filled with the Holy Spirit. 
So now we have at least 3,120 believers in Jerusalem that have been baptized in water and baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so this is quite a group that is starting to grow here very rapidly. And one other thing I want to point out. You know, pastors are under a lot of pressure in these days to make their churches grow. And sadly, many times they'll try and do just about anything to get the church to grow some. And that's sad, because God intends to add souls to His church through one and only one avenue. It's through anointed preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's all Peter did. He preached Christ and Him crucified. He preached the resurrection of Jesus. He preached repentance, baptism, and the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And 3,000 people responded. Um, I don't mean to be critical, but there's no mention here of Peter using rainbow lights and soft music and fog machines. And I'm not being facetious. Many pastors have fallen into this trap of thinking, you know, if we create the right kind of an effect on the stage with a little bit of fog and smoke and, you know, rainbow lighting, and if we have the right kind of music playing, then we can get people saved. Friends, we don't need fog machines we don't need celebrities, we don't need entertainment, we don't need any of those props. If we're filled with the Holy Spirit, preaching the right gospel, and the Holy Spirit is moving in people's hearts, we're going to see the same results today that they saw on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 people repented and received Christ. Now, Let's read the remaining verses in Acts chapter 2. And by the way, we did a two-part series recently in the church entitled, His Church, His Way. Uh, you might want to go back and listen to that message because it works in tandem with the things we're talking about here, but this goes into a little more depth than we were able to do in that message. But... Uh, I challenge you, pray over these verses in Acts chapter 2. Cry out to God and let's all be seeking the Lord. God, this is the kind of church we want, and this is the church we want to belong to, where we're seeing these kinds of things happening. And I want you to also, as you're reading Acts 2 again, notice some of the things that I just referred to that aren't there. They didn't have bright lights and fog machines and soft music. They didn't need those things. They had the power of God. And God help us to stop trusting in all these human ploys to try to imitate what only the Holy Spirit can do. Now, Acts 2, 42 to the end of the chapter, verse 47. They, referring to the 3,000 plus believers now that are in Jerusalem, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people and the Lord added to their number 
that's actually the word church in Greek. Uh, I'm very disappointed that the NIV translated it number, because it's the same Greek word, ecclesia, that is translated church everywhere else in the New Testament. King James gets it right, by the way. The Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Now, if you're looking for a nominal church where you can kind of sit in the back pew uh, once in a while on Sunday when it's convenient for you, these verses will make you very uncomfortable. And they should. Because your idea of a church doesn't line up with God's idea. This is radical, what I just read. This is total radical change has taken place in these people's lives. They are now very serious about what they're doing. They're devoted to this new life. They're devoted to fellowship, devoted to prayer, devoted to Bible study. They're so serious that they're going out and selling their possessions and giving the money away. That makes people really uncomfortable. Oh, pastor, I don't want to go to a church like that. Well, maybe God is trying to show us something, that these people had something that we don't have yet. It says every day they continue to meet together. Oh, don't get me started. We can't even come to church once a week, and that's an inconvenience for us. They were doing this every day, fellowshipping, breaking bread together, praying together, praising God together. Together For them, church wasn't once a week on Sunday. Church had now become their life. Okay? Now we're going to pick this apart. The word fellowship, I want to begin there. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We're going to come back and look at the teaching a little later. They devoted themselves to fellowship. The word here is the Greek word koinonia. It means partnership, participation, social intercourse, communication, communion, or fellowship. I think you get the idea. Togetherness, partnership, sharing together, everything. Sharing their food together, sharing their money and their possessions and their goods together, sharing their time together. This was a total, radical sharing that they felt God was calling them into. This was now the predominant activity in the lives of these 300, I'm sorry, 3,000 plus baptized believers. By the way, the word companion, it's very interesting if you study its origin. If you speak Spanish, you'll understand this immediately. The word in Spanish for bread is pan, P-A-N. And C-O-M or C-O-N means with, con, pon, with, pon. Well, a companion actually stems from this idea of people who break or share bread together. So, this wasn't just a little side thing that they were doing, breaking bread together. It was part of their fellowship, their sharing together. It was important that they were even eating together. That was a part of their fellowship. Now, it says in verse 42, they devoted themselves to these things. You know, it's one thing to kind of casually dabble in something, casually attend something once in a while. But I think we all understand the word devoted. And there are people who are devoted to all kinds of activities. There are people devoted 
to football, devoted to baseball, devoted to stamp collecting, and you can fill in the blanks, devoted to any number of things. It means a serious commitment, a passion. This is something you do regularly. You do it with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. It's something that you're going to be uh, faithful, regular, steadfast in. They devoted themselves to fellowship, breaking bread, prayer, and the apostles' teachings. They were devoted to these things. And I don't want to get off too far tonight, but I've grown very weary of trying to encourage people, you know, you need to come to church regularly, you need to be in Bible study regularly, you need to be in prayer regularly. I've just gotten tired of saying that over and over and over. And if people who have heard that a hundred times are still not devoted to those things, they'll likely never be devoted. And there may be something even more serious lacking. Maybe they're not even saved. Maybe they've never really even truly been born again. Because nobody had to tell these people to do this. They got saved, they got baptized, and voila, there they are, devoted to apostles' teaching, fellowship, prayer, and breaking of bread. It should come naturally to a truly born-again man or woman, child or young person. We shouldn't have to have somebody thumping us every week, calling us to remind us, you know, we've missed you in church the last three weeks. Where were you? Why don't you ever join in the Bible study? Why don't you ever come to prayer? Uh, I'm just, you know, I'm at the point where you either get it or you don't. These people got it. They were devoted to Bible study, devoted to fellowship, devoted to prayer. Let me say one more thing about fellowship. A lot of times we look at this selfishly. Oh, well, I don't need to go to church today. I can stay at home and read my Bible and pray. Sure, we can all do that. But you're denying the rest of the body something that you can contribute by being there. You see, it's not all about me, myself, and I. I want to be there in the gathering of believers because God will contribute something to the body just by my presence. Just by me being there, I contribute to the strength of the body. Furthermore, God may use me in a gift of the Spirit, He may give me a word of encouragement, a testimony, a song, a revelation, or something else. But just my physical presence there contributes to this thing called fellowship. So when you or I decide to take a vacation from church and stay at home and maybe watch television or pray or read our Bibles on our own, we're selfishly taking away from the rest of the body. And this might help you to understand it better. Suppose we have a church of 100 people, and on a given Sunday, all 100 decide to do the same thing, to stay at home. Well, we have no church. The church, ecclesia, literally refers to the gathering together of God's people, the called out ones, who are now gathering together. That implies fellowship. Fellowship is a ministry. And I know it's hard sometimes to get up, get in your car, and drive whatever distance you have to drive to get to church. Um, But the sacrifice is well worth it, because fellowship is a ministry. They were devoted to it in the early church. It goes on to say they shared everything in common. This wasn't just meeting together for an hour on Sunday. They were becoming a family. They were being knit together as one body. 
And there was a harmony. There was a unity that we already see here in Acts chapter 2 that sadly doesn't exist in many churches today. People show up. They sit in the pew. When the closing amen is given, they jump in their cars when they head home and nobody knows who they are and they don't know who anybody is. That's sad, because they're missing out on what real fellowship is. These people were meeting together daily to do these things. And I'm not going to go into a lot of depth on this, but apostles' teachings. These were revelations that God was giving through the apostles to this fledgling church. They didn't have the New Testament yet. We have the New Testament. They didn't. God was giving revelation to the apostles each and every day as they were seeking God in prayer and fasting and waiting on the Lord. God was beginning to give them teaching and instruction for the church. And so everybody else was gathering together, sitting at the feet of the apostles, and following their teachings, devoted to prayer, devoted to fellowship. It says in verse 43, many wonders and miraculous signs were being done by the apostles. Now, empowered by the Holy Spirit, they were regularly seeing supernatural manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Some of them are listed in 1 Corinthians 12. Gifts of wisdom, gifts of power, the gift of faith, working of miracles, discerning of spirits, words of knowledge and wisdom. They're all listed in 1 Corinthians 12. They were seeing wonders and miraculous signs. And we already learned this in part two, but I want to read the scripture again. These are the marks of true apostles. This is what Paul taught the Corinthians later in 2 Corinthians 12, 11 and 12. I have made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. I ought to have been commended by you, but I am not in the least inferior to the, quote, super apostles, even though I am willing even though I am nothing, sorry, the things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles, were done among you with great perseverance. You can see clearly from Acts 1 all the way through the end of the book of Acts, there's a clear distinction between the apostles and the rest of the believers. God intended for that distinction to be obvious because he made the apostles to be the foundation of this thing called the church. God, we're told in 1 Corinthians 12, set the apostles, he ordained them first in the church. Not that they were greater or anything than anyone else, but they had a specific office, they had a specific ministry in the church. Nowadays, in the average church, Everybody thinks that everybody's equal, everybody's a pastor, prophet, evangelist, pastor, or teacher, and who are you? I don't need to listen to you. You can't teach me anything because I've got all the gifts and I've got all the revelation. No wonder the modern church is so different from the church we're reading about in the book of Acts. In many cases, it's completely out of divine order. What we're seeing here is God establishing divine order in the church. The apostles were being used by God in many miraculous signs and wonders so that he could also use them to teach the church and to establish a proper foundation in the church. It goes on to say in verse 43, everyone, that means everyone, that was a part of this thing called the church. Everyone was filled with awe. I like that. There was a continual sense of amazement, 
a continual sense of wonder in the church. God was moving in such amazing and supernatural ways that they were like, wow, this is really cool. This is amazing. And, you know, God help us if we start to get bored in the church, bored in our spiritual life, we need to cry out to God, Lord, stir us up, bring us back to a place of wonder and amazement where we're amazed at the love of God. We're amazed at the power of the Holy Spirit. We're filled continually with a sense of wonder because, remember, the church was just born on the morning of Pentecost with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Supernaturally, the church was born, and it's going to continue to experience the supernatural power, grace, wisdom, and love of God. That's what keeps us in that state of wonder and amazement. They were all filled with awe. And no doubt, these miraculous signs and wonders mentioned, it doesn't specify exactly what they were. We're going to read about some specific miracles in the coming chapters. But it says many wonders and miraculous signs were done. Certainly that included miraculous healings, deliverance from demonic bondages and and demonic possessions. They were seeing these things happen, and it's like, wow, this is God. This is the power of God. Miraculous signs and manifestations of the Holy Spirit. They couldn't understand all this. It went beyond their understanding. It was beyond anything they had ever experienced before. And here again, God help us when we come to a place in our churches where we think we've got it all figured out, we've got God tied up in a nice little box, we have an opening prayer, three songs, a 45-minute sermon, a closing prayer, and we all go home and eat and watch the football game. God help us. We should pray, God, shake things up in the church. Do something new this week so that we will be filled with awe and wonder, realizing God is in this place. God is talking to us. God is moving in his house. And you know, when there's a sense of awe and wonder, it arouses the question that we just read earlier in Acts 2. What must we do? When sinners are in the midst of all that, Paul would later write in 1 Corinthians 14, they fall down to the ground saying, God is here. What must I do? It also says in verse 47 that this group of people, which we will show in a minute, is actually the church, was enjoying favor of all the people. That means the surrounding community, even the unsaved who were living in the uh, area there of New Jerusalem, there was a feeling of goodwill um, between the church and the community. It says in the Message Bible, the people in general liked what they saw. This was good. What was happening was very good. Now, I want to look more carefully at verse 47. It says, Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The Lord added to their number. The word number, very clearly, in the Greek, is ecclesia almost sounds like the Spanish word for church, iglesia, because it it is. It's the word translated everywhere else in the New Testament, church. The Lord added to the 
church. And ecclesia literally means the called out ones, the ones who have been called out. Remember, Peter was telling them, you need to get out of this corrupt generation. You need to get out of this sick and perverse culture. And the church are those whom God has called out of the world, called out of darkness, called out of sin, into his gathering, into his body. The word ecclesia can also be translated assembly, gathering together, or congregation. It's the church. But remember, church does not refer to a building. We, we use that term very loosely. Oh, I'm going to church today, and we're saving up money for our new church. But that's really not biblical. The, the building isn't the church. The church is the people. It's the gathering together, the separation of a holy group of people. Um, the first instance in the book of Acts, after the Gospels, where this word appears, is right here, in Acts 2, verse 47. So, we now have, without any doubt, a church. And that's why it is generally accepted that the church began on the day of Pentecost with the baptism in the Holy Spirit. How amazing that so many so-called church denominations refuse to even acknowledge the baptism in the Holy Spirit when it is the beginning of this thing called the church. And many of you have heard me in recent weeks saying this, and I'm going to repeat it again. No Holy Spirit, no church. It's that simple. The, the Holy Spirit isn't some added luxury. The Holy Spirit is what brought the church into being. And if we're going to try to leave Him out, then we can forget about having a true church. So, this church, it was not a building, it was not an organization, it's actually something living and breathing, it's organic, it's growing, it's made up of living people, and it's growing only one way. It says, and I like this, the Lord added to their number, the Lord added to the church, and to be added to the church, you have to meet a certain criterion. You have to be able to meet one simple requirement. What is it? It says, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. You see, <laughs> if you're not saved, you can't join the church. I don't care how many membership cards you fill out. Real membership in the body of Christ comes about only one way. Repent, be baptized, and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Those saved ones who accepted Peter's message, they are the ones that Luke is referring to here. This group of 3,000 more, the Lord added them to the church. Later on, Paul would uh, explain this a little bit more in detail. One sows the seed, another waters, but only God gives the increase. Only God gives growth to the church. So, why do we still feel we need to help God with and I'm just using this as an example, fog machines, entertainment, inviting a celebrity to the church, thinking that, oh, if we have this celebrity come, a lot of people, 
a lot of people are going to get saved. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> well, if the celebrity has truly received Christ and have had a life-altering radical change in their life, praise God, God may use his testimony to get a few people saved. But if they're just coming because he's a celebrity, we're using the wrong gimmicks, and I, I like to use that word, gimmicks, to try to draw people into the church. Why do we want a bunch of unsaved people, quote, joining the church? You can't do that. God only adds those who are saved to the church. We would be much better served going back to the formula that Peter used. Preach the gospel, preach repentance, preach water baptism, preach the baptism in the Holy Spirit, and then wait for the Holy Spirit to bring conviction into people's hearts. Otherwise, uh, I have my doubts if they're really saved in the first place. And time will tell. In many cases, they just came, said a sinner's prayer, and they went away a sinner. Because no real supernatural work was done in their heart. You see, to be saved, Jesus taught, you must be born again. That's a radical thing. To be born again, or I prefer another expression that John uses, born of God. Wow. God now becomes your father. You have been supernaturally birthed again. Born again. You're a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. So, what we're witnessing here already in Acts chapter 2 is radical. And I want to conclude this very quickly, and I strongly encourage you, if you don't have them, get the notes, because in the conclusion here on pages 35 and 36, I've given a list, and I'm going to go through the list very quickly, but a list of what we're calling marks of a true church. And if indeed what we're seeing happening here in Acts 2 is the church, we need to study this line by line and ask some very serious questions. How does my church compare to this one? How does my idea of a church compare to this one? Have I inherited a bunch of traditions and things that I thought were important that aren't even here in Acts chapter 2? And what are some of these marks that jump off the pages as we read Acts chapter 2? Let's go through these. What does a real church look like? Number one, they had anointed preaching. They weren't talking about the election or the weather or the Roman government or any of that nonsense. They were preaching Christ crucified, resurrected, and exalted back to the right hand of the Father. In other words, the message in this church was Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Jesus was the lead story. Jesus was and is the headline. And we need to check this regularly in our churches. What is our message? Is it really Christ, or have we drifted off into social issues and the election and politics and all this stuff? There may be a time and a place to make mention of some of those things, but if that has become the headline, I believe the Lord has uh, has to bring us back to the central message that the early church focused on, which was Christ. Secondly, in the early church, 
We talked about this tonight. Sinners and unbelievers were coming under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They were cut to the heart. They didn't feel comfortable. And here again, many pastors today, I'm afraid, are going down the wrong road. They're trying to make their churches friendly to sinners. Well, I understand that. We want to attract sinners. We want to bring them into our churches so that they can hear the message of Christ. But I don't think we want them to feel comfortable when they hear the message. If they're sinners, they should be very uncomfortable when they hear the message of the cross and the gospel. These people were cut to the heart and it led to a radical change in their life. Repentance and a coming out of the corruption of the world. Point number three. New converts were being regularly saved, baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit, and added to the church. It's a, it's a mark of a healthy church. People getting saved, baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit. Point number four, five, and six are all related, but they're, they're each a bit different. I'm going to read them together. Number four, there was unity and harmony amongst all the believers. Point six, the believers were in regular fellowship, eating and worshiping together. And point six, everyone in the community shared everything in common. There was genuine love, charity, and care expressed for one another. Key words, unity, fellowship, sharing, and love. Those were all hallmarks of this church. Unity, fellowship, genuine sharing, genuine love. For each other. Point number seven. The believers in this church were in steadfast and continual prayer. Prayer doesn't seem to be real popular in churches anymore. That's very sad because that was really what led to the birth of the church. They were in the upper room praying continually, waiting for the Holy Spirit. Prayer, prayer, prayer was the secret, if I can use that word, to this whole revival that led to the birth of the church. Prayer, lots of prayer. Point number eight, devotion to apostolic teaching. Devotion to apostolic teaching. Getting it right being able to rightly divide the word of truth. Not just knowing a few of our favorite Bible verses, but I mean really digging into the doctrines of the Bible, knowing the word of God, so that we can't be blown around by every wind of doctrine, every deception that comes down the pike. These people were getting a foundation in apostolic teaching. That's what the apostles do. They teach the church the, the proper foundation. Point number nine. This goes along with that, but it's different. There was a careful and regular study of prophetic scripture. These apostles were regularly referring to Old Testament prophecies. Case in point, what Peter did on the day of Pentecost. This is what the prophet Joel predicted. So they knew these prophecies, and they were pointing out each time prophecy was being fulfilled. So they were very carefully studying and following prophetic scripture so that they could understand and interpret things as they were unfolding. Oh my goodness, how we need that in our day. There is stuff happening in the world today, 
And many Christians don't have a clue what's going on because they don't understand prophecy. They don't understand these things have already been predicted in the Word of God. They had a clear understanding of prophetic scripture. Point 10, and this goes right back to Acts 2.4, how the whole thing began. The fullness of the Holy Spirit was evident in this church. They had miracles, signs, and wonders regularly taking place. It was obvious that these people had been filled with the Holy Spirit. Sadly, many churches have closed their doors to the Holy Spirit and to anything supernatural. They've actually banned prophecy from their meetings. They won't even allow anyone to speak in tongues, or they won't allow mention of speaking in tongues in their churches. How sad. That's how the church began. And if we don't have the fullness of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to boldly say, I don't think we have a church. No Holy Spirit, no church. And the the manifestation of the Spirit, read about them in 1 Corinthians 12, they are not a luxury item. Paul taught the Corinthian church, we must come behind in no gift, be lacking in none of those gifts as we are preparing for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church needs the fullness of the Holy Spirit with all of those supernatural manifestations. Point 11. We read this. There was a spirit of joy, gladness, and praise in the early church. They were just so happy. They were praising God, going from house to house, singing and enjoying fellowship together. They were just filled with joy. There was a spirit of joy in the early church. Point number 12, we just talked about this. Everyone was filled with awe and wonder. This was not your ho-hum, fall asleep in the middle of the church service kind of a deal. There was excitement. These people were like, wow, this is cool. God is here. God is moving. God is talking. God is touching me. They were filled with excitement. They were filled with awe and wonder. And finally, point number 13, they enjoyed favor and goodwill with all the people in the community. I hope Acts chapter 2 will stir you up the way it has been stirring me up. And it's stirred me up for weeks and weeks and weeks now. And I'm not stopping. I'm still praying. I'm still fasting. I'm still crying out to God. Lord, I want to see your church. I want to see a glorious church without spot or wrinkle. I want to see anointing, power, healings, miracles, deliverance, unity, love, prayer, the power of God, a devotion to the Word of God in the church. We're tired of the old way of doing things. Let's shed all the old traditions and all this stuff that isn't even mentioned in the Word of God. And let's pray and cry out to God to build the church His way. His church, His way. Lord Jesus, build your church. Pour out your Spirit on all flesh, just as the prophet Joel promised and predicted. Bring anointed preaching back into every pulpit, every church, so that if there are sinners and unbelievers present, they would be made to feel uncomfortable. Their hearts would be pierced, and they would come forward, even before there's an altar call, saying, what must we do to be saved? And God, I pray that you would bring unity, harmony, real sharing, caring, love, and fellowship into your church. Lord, you want this more than we do. It's your plan. It's your purpose 
to have a glorious church in these last days. And Lord, as we conclude together tonight in prayer, we ask you earnestly in the name of Jesus Christ, raise up your church. Not our church, not my church or so-and-so's church, your church. It's one. It's holy. It's pure. It is filled with power and glory. And it's the church you are coming back for. A radiant, glorious, spirit-filled church where all of the manifestations of the Holy Spirit are evident. God, I thank you for including each one of us in your plan and purpose. Help us to be ever so careful to build according to your plan. We thank you for raising up apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, for establishing local churches with real elders, with real deacons that are filled with the Holy Spirit, that are devoted to the Word of God and the teaching <clears throat> the teaching of your Word. Father, I pray that you would protect and keep the church from every deception, from every false prophet, every false apostle, every false teaching that might try to blow through the churches. Help us to be rooted and grounded in Christ, founded on your word, founded on Christ and Christ alone and nothing else. 